Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. Both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured, piteous overthrows do with their death bury their parents' strife, the fearful passage of their death-marked love, and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end not could remove is now the two hours traffic of our stage. The which, if you with patient ears attend, what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. William Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet, the prologue that tells all about what's gonna happen throughout the rest of the play. It's all right there in the beginning this tragic, tragic story. The first time I heard these words, I was a freshman in high school, growing up here in the community, so I was at RHS, Roseburg High School, and I was determined when I found out we were gonna be studying Romeo and Juliet that I was not going to pay attention. (laughs) I did not want anything to do with fancy talking or romance or any of that, so I took a seat in the back of the classroom And I kind of looked out the window at the happenings going on as the story started and these words broke out. And then something happened where I started kind of wondering what would happen if the characters did something different. And now I'm invested, right? (laughs) So now I'm listening a little more and I think, oh, wow, if the parents just had the conversation, like... What would have happened? Or I'm thinking, wow, Romeo shouldn't have done that. He should have done this. And then as the story progresses, I end up feeling what the characters are feeling. As they go through this great tragedy, I feel terrible for them. And I walk out of the classroom feeling sad, seeing a little of my own tragedies and their tragedies. But I'm also left with a glimmer of hope. Because in this pinnacle of English literature, even though it's tragic, even though it's this hard story with hard emotions, there's that glimmer of hope because we have the chance to do something different in our own lives. That's what tragedy teaches us. If they went through that and did it all wrong, then when I go through something like that, I can make different decisions. We all have choices, and those choices lead to good things and bad things. And knowing what happened in somebody else's tragedy can lead to hope for our future. Said a different way by one of my favorite quotes is from philosopher George Santayana, who said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. 
If we don't take into consideration that which happened before or the stories of other people, then when the same things happen to us, we're not going to be able to know what to do. We don't have those same choices. That's why it's important to take a look at stories like the story of Eli. I've titled this message, Ends and Beginnings, because in Eli's end, there's a new beginning. And in his beginning, it's kind of the end of an era. This theme is going to come up a lot during the message. But first, I want to say one more thing. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we here today are Christians, if we believe that the Bible is God's breathed word, then we owe it to ourselves to know the stories in it. Not just the stories of Paul or of Jesus or some of the bigger names that come to mind. But if we believe this verse, then we believe there's something that we can learn, that we can apply from lesser known stories like Eli the priest. With that in mind, let's jump right into it. Let's look at how Eli's story begins. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, right? Just kidding, it's this galaxy. It just happened a long time ago. If you've got your Bibles, please open them to the book of Numbers. We're going to be in Numbers 8, 15 through 19. And this is a conversation between God and Moses. Just for a little context, if you're wondering, okay, where's Eli? How is this the beginning of the story? Eli's story starts long before Eli is born. And in the Bible, there's not actually an account of exactly where his story begins. But we do have some context, and this verse helps us out. So we're going to start in Numbers 8, 15 through 19. As you can see, you can follow along right up there on the screens. And after that, this is God talking to Moses, the Levite shall go in to serve at the tent of meeting. When you have cleansed them and offered them as a wave offering, for they are wholly given to me from among the people of Israel. Instead of all who open the womb, the firstborn of all the people of Israel, I have taken them for myself. Oh, do I skip over? Okay, I'm all good. Sorry. <laughs> Verse 17. For all the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, both of man and of beast. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated them for myself. And I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the people of Israel to do the service for the people of Israel at the tent of meeting and to make atonement for the people of Israel that there may be no plague among the people of Israel when the people of Israel come near the sanctuary. Numbers 8, 15 through 19. Now, one of the words that comes up a lot in this section of Scripture is 
the Levites. So who are the Levites? The Levites are one of the tribes of Israel. And after they come out of Egypt, after they come out of slavery, and God is talking to Moses, their leader, about kind of how it's all going to be organized, he talks about this tribe of Levi and what their job is going to be. Well, other tribes might have allotted lands and allotted jobs, and they're on different places. The tribe of Levi is specifically chosen. Out of a chosen people, a chosen tribe. We know that Eli was a priest. He worked as a priest, the chief priest, in the tent of meeting, which is kind of like their version of church. So he would have grown up as a Levite. That's where his story starts, being born into the tribe of Levi. If we could go to the next slide, please. Just like Eli, we as Christians, if you believe in Jesus Christ today, we are a chosen People. If you're following along in your outline, the first little section there of blanks is that we are a chosen people, right? We are chosen. Because Eli, Eli could have been a lot of different things when he was born. We don't know a whole lot of details about his early life. Okay, I really like to fish, but I'm a terrible fisherman. I go fishing all the time, and I don't catch hardly anything. And a lot of you out there probably don't like fishing, but have probably caught more fish than I have caught. <laughs> and while that, we all have those individual differences, the same is like that with Eli. We're all Christians, and we're unified by that. Whether you like fishing or don't like fishing, whether you vote one way or vote the other way, whether you like this, that, or the other, above everything else, I am a Christian, I, or you are a Christian. No matter who Eli was, he was a chosen person. And just in that, we can identify with him. We see a little of ourselves in his story. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christians are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. We are called out of a darkness and into a marvelous light. So whoever you are, whatever you like to do, whatever you believe, whatever tradition you came from, if you are a Christian, that's part of your identity, and you are a chosen person. That's how our story starts as Christian. We are called out of darkness into marvelous light as a chosen race, just like Eli was born into a tribe where he was chosen just by virtue of his family and who he was. We are a chosen people. What else happened? After he's born into this chosen group of people, just like we as Christians are chosen, what's the next step in his life? Well, he was a judge of Israel. Eli was a judge of Israel. If we could go to the next slide, please. He, in fact, was one of the last judges of Israel. So in his beginning is kind of the end of an era. He judged Israel for 40 years. 
a long time, and before him there were many judges. So before we can talk about exactly what this means, we need to talk about something called the judges cycle. The judges cycle. This is something that happens in the book of Judges over and over and over again right? We've got Israel. If we can go to the next slide, we're going to take a look at a couple scriptures in the beginning of Judges. Judges 2 verse 11, then is the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, which were kind of like an idol of a neighboring clan. So we've got Israel, the chosen people, and they're supposed to be following God, looking up, but then, uh-oh, they do evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they fall. All right, what happens next? We're going to go to the next verse a couple later. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. So what happens? Israel's following God, right? Then they decide not to. So that's the first step of the cycle, and then this is the next step. So God gives them into whatever their passions are. In this case, he sold them into the hands of their enemies, so they were no longer able to resist them. So we've got Israel. They resist God. God gives them up into their passions. What's the next step? We're going to go to the next verse. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of their enemies. So Israel does bad, right? Are you still with me? Perfect. Then they make this mistake, and God gives them up into the hands of their enemies. Then God raises up judges, right? And the judges are supposed to be the ones who bring Israel back. And these judges, they're, they're male and female. Some are super strong. Some are super smart. They're all very unique and have a very interesting story. The thing that they have in common, despite all their differences, is this cycle, this judge's cycle. So if we can go to the next slide, please. Eli was one of the last judges. So what happens in his story? How does the cycle play out? This is going to be one of, in First um, Samuel 4. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to that now. We're going to be, go through 1 through 11. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. We'll talk about him a little bit later. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped at Aphek. So the Philistines are these people that they're going against right now. Verse 2. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. 
And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Verse 9, the turning point. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. They fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is tragic. This is a tragic story. Eli is supposed to be the judge of Israel. He's supposed to be the one in that final step of the cycle to take Israel from where they are and push them back to following God, kind of their leader. But what happens? Rather than pointing them to God, rather than Israel as a nation trusting in the Lord, they trust in an object that represents him, the Ark of the Covenant. They take the Ark of the Covenant out, and it's that very thing that motivates the Philistines out of terror to fight hard and beat Israel. And the Ark of the Lord is stolen, and 30,000 of Eli's friends and family, his neighbors, the people he saw on the street, they died. This is a tragic story. And in this tragedy, there's something we can relate to. If we could go to the next slide, we cannot save our neighbors. We are a chosen people, but we cannot save our neighbors, just like Eli couldn't. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't share the gospel with our neighbors or tell them about Jesus. This is simply a declaration of the truth about our world. Each and every one of us is a different individual. Everybody outside of this church is an individual. And as Christians, I'm sure you can all relate to a scenario where you see people making decisions that are bad, that are wrong, that we know don't line up with what the Word of God says. And sometimes it brings some terrible, tragic consequences to people that we love. And while we might wish that we could share the gospel in a way that they would, they would just instantly grab hold of it and make all their decisions by, while we might wish we could just make their decisions for them, the ultimate reality of our world is that each person makes their own decisions. We cannot save our neighbors. So we're chosen people and we can't save our neighbors. What else happens in Eli's story? We've seen that he's a judge of Israel. He was born into this chosen people, but he couldn't save his neighbors. They went out and they died. That's tragic. Let's go to the next slide, please. We cannot save our family either. 
Eli is remembered as one, the father of Hophni and Phinehas. We don't have a ton of time to go into exactly what these men were, but one verse kind of sums it up. If we could go to the next slide. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They didn't know the Lord. They were worthless men who did not know the Lord. So Eli, this person who's kind of in charge, has these two sons, and they are just terrible. If you have some time this week, I would recommend going back to 1 Samuel and reading about all the things they did because it kind of explains some of the bad things that happened to Eli's family. They disobey God. They don't know him. And this leads to some pretty terrible consequences. In fact, what happens is a man of God, a prophet, comes and he gives this prophecy against Eli's family because of what his sons are doing. Let's go to this next section. This next slide, please. And the next slide. There it is. 1 Samuel 2, 30 through 36. Therefore, the Lord of God of Israel declares... I promise your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor. For those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this, that they shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. That's the story we just looked at. They went out with the Ark of the Covenant, something they probably shouldn't have done, something that Eli might have made a mistake in. But the point of this story is that they went out and they died. It's the next step in this tragedy. All of these people of Israel, they die. And Eli's two sons, they also die. The next part of this verse says, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left of your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Next slide. We cannot save our family just like Eli couldn't save his family. Eli was this powerful figure, this priest of Israel, and yet in his power, in his knowledge, in his position... His sons go out, and they're in a position that he cannot control. I'm sure if we could ask him today that he would have chosen a different fate for his children, that he wished they wouldn't have gone out and died on the same day. 
But that's just the reality of what happened. And he could not control that situation. So just like him, we might have some measure of control over our family. But ultimately, there's things in this world that we cannot control. There's dangers and diseases and circumstances that are outside and beyond any of us. We cannot save our family from these various things. We can't control every little thing that happens in this world, and that's tragic. Just like Eli's story is tragic. We cannot save our family. We cannot save our neighbors, even though we are chosen people. So how does the story end? What is the ultimate ending of Eli's life? Let's take a look at this, this final section in 1 Samuel 4, 12 through 18. For a little bit of context, this is right after this great battle has taken place, right after Israel has fallen. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. When the man came into the city, he told the news. All the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. He said, how did it go, my son? And he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards in his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. After everything that's happened, he falls backwards. His neck breaks. He dies. Next slide. We cannot save ourselves. If you haven't figured it out yet, everybody in this room is going to the same place. We are all destined to die. It's one of the most natural parts of life. Like Eli, even though we're chosen people, we cannot save ourselves from death. We can't even save our legacy. Raise your hands if you know your grandparents' names. You know your grandparents' names? Okay, good. Raise your hand if you know your great-grandparents' names. Okay, a couple hands. All your great-grandparents, every single one? Okay, what about your great-great-grandparents? Okay, we've got like maybe one or two, but ultimately the lesson is we're all about two generations away from being forgotten. <laughs> we're all about two generations away from being forgotten. So what is the point if we can't save our legacy, just like Eli couldn't, his house was cut off, his children weren't going to have any jobs, there wasn't going to be an old man left, 
If we can't save ourselves, we can't save our legacy, we can't change the minds of our neighbors to make good decisions, if we can't control every aspect of the world to keep our family safe, then what's the point? Why go through the struggle of being a Christian, of trying our best to follow God, of being a chosen person, if we can't save ourselves? What's the point? I asked you at the beginning of this message to to try and empathize, even though it was hard, with the tragedy that is Eli's life. And now I have to kind of apologize because this isn't actually Eli's story. Yeah, we've looked at his beginning. We've looked at his judgment period. We've looked at how he was the judge of Israel and how he was a father and how he couldn't save himself, the end of the story. But this isn't actually Eli's story. And it's not your story. And it's not my story. Regardless of the tragedies or triumphs of our own life, The story is bigger than this. Next slide. Jesus can save everything. Jesus can save everything. This is the glimmer of hope at the end of the tragedy. We have gone through this tragic story and heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak happens in the life of this chosen person, but it's not his story and it's not ours. Jesus can save everything. This is not the story of a broken man who sees tragedy and tragedy and then one day he dies. And this is not your story or my story. The story is so much bigger than this and it's full of hope. It's a story of a perfect world, a perfect creation, corrupted by sin. So God, the creator in his love, created a system by which we could know him. But humanity kept making mistakes and kept making mistakes and kept making mistakes. And then we get to Eli. God takes care of his people through these judges, but even that's not enough. And so his end leads to the beginning of the king's period, the kingdom of Israel. And then the kings make mistake after mistake after mistake, but God still loves them anyway. So from the line of one of the kings, he brings his son into the world the ultimate Savior who can save everything, who can save our neighbors, who can save our families, and who, when we get to that gift of death at the end of our life, who will remember us when we remember him, who will say, well done, good and faithful servant. This is not the tragedy that I told you it was. This is the larger story of how Jesus saves everything. Let's see what the application is to this story. Acceptance of Jesus' gift of perfection. Because as we've seen, and as I hope you've seen from Eli's life, we have a little bit of his mistakes in us. Each one of us, regardless of how long we've been a Christian or how well we live our lives, are inherently flawed. We make mistakes and we will continue to make mistakes. That's part of being human, So we need to accept Jesus' gift of perfection. If you think you can live a life without Jesus' gift, you can't. One of the applications of this story is that we aren't perfect, but Jesus is. He has the power to save. Another application is a conviction of our own sin. 
I don't want to harp too hard on negatives here, so don't see this as a negative. See this as we're all the same. None of us is above the other, regardless of if you're a Christian today or not a Christian today, regardless of how long you've been following Christ or the tradition you grew up in. All of us are inherently not as we were intended to be. And if we sit around on our high horse pointing fingers at everybody else we think are doing a terrible job or are doing a job worse than us, that's a problem because we're just pointing the finger back at ourselves. We've all made mistakes. We all need Jesus' gift of perfection. One of the biggest applications here today is a new perspective on the world that this story is not about us. In our culture, in the world we live in, it's hard to look beyond ourselves sometimes, right? I have a problem with that all the time. I see the way I look at the world, it's, it's all about how I relate to it and how I relate to the other people and the other events that are happening, this and that and the other. But this story is not our story. This is Jesus's story. We are characters in a larger narrative of hope. And so, one of the best applications of this story is to reframe the way we see our world. We need to stop living our own story, our own tragedies, our own triumphs, and figure out how we fit into the narrative of hope, into the story of Jesus. Because it's not about us. It's not our story. It's the story of how Jesus can save everything. Let's move to the next slide. As we come to a close here, I'm going to bow my head and say a prayer. And regardless of where you are or how you're feeling, if you have a thought that you want to stop living your story and start living God's story, I'd ask you to just lift that up in prayer. And if you need some more conversation or advice or however you want to put it, please, I would love nothing more and this church would love nothing more than if you could write a note on your Connect card or or write an email. All the information can be found online so that we can meet up with you and talk about what it means to live a life that's not about us, but about a larger narrative of hope. Let's bow. God, we come before you today as a thankful church. No matter where we come from, we're all united knowing that you love us that you sent your son so that it doesn't have to just be tragedy, but that there's a glimmer of hope. As we close out the service today, we thank you for all the blessings you've given us, and we ask that you continue to remain with us, helping us to reframe our lives in relation to you rather than taking you and wrapping your story around us. We ask your grace and your Holy Spirit to come today to change hearts, to change minds, and to give us a motivation to be true missionaries, starting right here in our community, going all the way across the world. We pray that we are able to be your servants and that in all things we keep our mind on the ultimate gift that you can save everything even when we're not in control. It's in the name of Jesus, the only one who can save, that we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, 
we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.